and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. Each week, we highlight the many ways flying shows up and examine what happens physically, mentally, and emotionally when we defy gravity, chart our own course, and rewrite the notions of what women can and should do. I believe that in telling our stories, we are shifting a larger narrative, one small win at a time. Today's episode is the first Ask Me Anything in season three, and I'm so excited. It has been a hot second since our last Ask Me Anything episode in season two, and since then, our listenership has skyrocketed, and we have had a ton of great questions come in. So I'm psyched to sit down and switch roles to do a little talking. In this episode, some deep questions about the meaning of the metaphor of flight as we find ways, perhaps new ways, depending on what you're looking for, of moving forward. What I have learned about trusting my gut, running, what I'm afraid of, changes in flying and creativity that came along with motherhood, and the differences between flying and flow. One note, the questions around our big move to Switzerland have been batched for another episode, and I will punt them for another day. Frankly, I am still needing time to process as life unfolds in this new, complex, and stunning country. Regular listeners will know that I recently moved across an ocean with my husband and three kids. A challenging, inspiring, life-changing adventure lies ahead. I will talk about our move and life in Switzerland, la vie en Suisse, in a next solo episode. And before we get started, We have just launched a new way for you to be part of the When Women Fly project and this podcast. This episode is the happy result of written questions to our email, hello at whenwomenfly.com. This will continue to be an option, but we have a new way to get your voice on the air, and I hope you will consider it. You can now leave a voice message or a question for the Ask Me Anything episodes through Pod Inbox. There is a link in the show notes to www.podinbox.com slash whenwomenfly. And there you can record your message so I can replay your question instead of reading it. Okay, let's jump in. Solo episode, Ask Me Anything. Thanks so much for being here today. I know you have a lot of different podcasts and a lot of other things you could be doing right now. So I really appreciate you taking the time. This episode of Ask Me Anything for season three has seven questions for today. But first, I have had a general inquiry that I just wanted to meet head on. People often ask me where I am from. Not officially a submitted question here, but let's front end with this sort of bonus question. Where am I from? It is actually not that complicated. I grew up in Illinois, west of Chicago, in a suburb called St. Charles. Solid Midwest upbringing. Corn on the cob, jello, hamburgers, Dairy Queen. I played volleyball, soccer, and I ran track and field. And a huge part of my out of school time was spent on or around horses, as my mother, her sister, and my grandmother rode daily and competed. And I did also. When I was in grade school, we moved to Pennsylvania during the buildup to the 1984 Olympics in LA. So my mom could train and hopefully make the three-day equestrian team. That spring, her horse hurt his foot, and I went to camp that summer and we moved back to Illinois. 
I moved to New England for high school and stayed for college. However, that is when I also really started to travel a lot. I took a total of three terms in France between high school and college where I studied a lot of art. It was an amazing time of flourishing expansion personally and creatively. Provence as an artist simply just stole my heart. I lived in Paris and Poe and Provence at different times. Put a bookmark here because my story returns to this region a couple of decades later. In retrospect, a seed was planted that took some time to bring back into fruition, which was to live back in French-speaking countryside. But I finished my undergrad first, and then I moved to Portland, Oregon. I had a lead at the art school there, and I also had a friend that worked at the Portland Japanese Garden. So between those two anchors, I had a short but impressionable stint with my bike and these two jobs and an outdoor culture that really energized me. It was the intersection of the art and the Japanese garden that led me to pursue landscape architecture, which brought me back to New England for four years at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. And for the next 16 to 18 years, more or less, I lived in two places, Cambridge, outside of Boston, and a small rural town called Lincoln, further away from Boston, but the home of Thoreau's Walden Pond and some beautiful farmland. So during that time, I was married. I learned to fly. I had one, two, and then three kids. And then kind of fast forward in 2018, my husband and I decided that we would do something a bit radical in some perspective, and to others, it didn't seem so. But we decided to take a year abroad with our three little kids that were then four, seven, and 10. And we had thought that we would give them the experience of language immersion and just simply a new perspective to give all of us some time also to reflect on a life that we had built and also process the reality that the grind that we were in was simply not sustainable. We were seeing symptoms that it was really taking away from our happiness. So we spent the year in Switzerland where we knew close to no one with the exception of a few work colleagues that my husband collaborated with in his so-called sabbatical at the IOC and ISIL in Lausanne. And then we returned to Cambridge in 2019. And we told ourselves we would take that year to make some major shifts and figure out what that meant because the time in Switzerland really shed light on the fact that there was another option of different places we could live. And we were deciding between Vermont and Switzerland or perhaps another option where we could raise our kids in ways that were more consistent with what was important to us, being outdoors, living somewhere beautiful, and spending less time in traffic. When COVID brought the world to a halt during that period of time, we moved right away to Vermont. My mother was there and she had just had a minor stroke. So it was really obvious to us where we needed to be. Eventually, we did return to Cambridge for the kids' school and work commitments until the summer of 2022 when we moved back to Switzerland, the French-speaking part of Switzerland where I am sitting now recording this episode. I actually love to talk about where I am from. All of these places have meant a lot to me 
as someone who considers place a really impressionable and important part of sort of who we are and how we feel in the world, all these places have have meant something to me. Okay, so that's sort of my general inquiry. I just wanted to answer that and just get that out there. So we have seven questions for today, and some of them are a little bit longer of an answer than others, but I'm just going to dive right into the first one from Anne McLaughlin. How do we start building a new way to walk through the world using flight as a metaphor? Okay, so I thought I would tackle this one first. What learning to fly taught me was that setting a goal that seemed out of reach, that I had sidelined for years, that I'd found countless reasons not to do, even though I couldn't stop thinking about it, learning to fly taught me that breaking the big goal into steps and fully engaging was a really powerful combination and a really powerful transferable approach that could be used in so many other parts of life. How do we start building a new way to walk through the world using flight as a metaphor? That was the real question. So first of all, however we employ the metaphor, flight doesn't happen spontaneously. In all the various ways that we celebrate the spirit of flight on this podcast, every single one of them requires a dedicated time of learning. And in that learning, we not only become capable, but we have learned that change is not an overnight miracle. In a time when we are obsessed with finding shortcuts and hacks to life, the learning that really changes us is not an overnight miracle. I know there's nothing like the neatly packaged narrative of the overnight success story, but honestly, that's just not that honest. The truth is that long-standing, sustainable personal growth is never instantaneous. It's messy and nonlinear, two steps backwards for every step in the right direction. It's forged out of self-experimentation, research, discomfort, failure, courage, and all too often a lot of stumbling around in the dark. My point, it's not a clean line. We don't have to hold on to this perfectionist ideal. In fact, it's this ideal that generally holds us back. It paralyzes us or leads to self-defeatism when we fall short of the idealized goals. So that's one part of my answer to how the examination of the ways we fly can give us new ways of, quote, walking through the world, as the question so lyrically stated. I love this practical question. There are seeds of ideas and wisdom nuggets in every episode, in every interview. There are case studies of ways in which lives have been woven with some really cool shit that serve as a means to feel a sense of liberation. And when we learn to fly, we gain confidence and perspective. And then that feeds back to other areas of our life. The question taps into the conundrum also of sort of the chicken and the egg between our actions and our feelings. The central quandary, of course, is do our actions create the feelings or do our feelings then motivate their actions? There has been more and more proven by social scientists that our feelings derive from our bodies and its actions. The takeaway being that overthinking or stalling because feelings are unclear or murky or negative is a downward spiral. Life is too short and sweet to stall while our feelings get lucid. Our feelings are fleeting, so go do the thing. Go do your version of flying and know that it will change your mindset and your feelings. One point of view is 
we act the way we feel. And hence, it is impossible to act happy when we feel the other way around. This could be something which many people are subscribing to. So to wrap up the long-witted answer to the question, the metaphor of flight gives us a framework for affirming that what we do informs how we feel. The philosopher and psychologist William James explained, action seems to follow feelings, but really action and feelings go together. And by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. Advice from every quarter, ancient and contemporary, backs up the observation that to change your feelings, we should change our actions. I know these things through flying and running and skiing and surfing. It unlocks confidence and helps us live a better life, our own better life as we define it. So question number two, I love this one. Do you always trust your gut? And this is from Rita. Okay, I love this debate. On one hand, you have quotes from Oprah, who I love, saying how important it is to trust our gut. And on the other hand, you have books like Don't Trust Your Gut, Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life. This is one of those yes and for me. Do I always trust my gut? The short answer is no, but I do always listen to it. When learning to fly, for instance, in really cloudy conditions, we fly by means of our instruments. And there's a widely enforced lesson in learning to fly in the clouds about not trusting your instincts. So I use this to think about when we're really dysregulated and we don't really have a sense of our surroundings. As a brand new pilot, one of the first things that you learn about mitigating your risk is this sort of psychological phenomena called spatial disorientation or spatial D in pilot speak. It's when your body is telling you one thing and your flight instruments are telling you something different. So switch out flight instruments for data or your spreadsheet or something like that. So on one hand, you have your gut telling you which way is up and which way is left and which way is right. And on the other hand, you have your flight instruments, which are telling you something different. So there are times when it is really important for me to listen to my gut, but I'm also extremely human and I have a lot of things that go into my gut. I have fears and nerves and expectations and a lot of things that kind of could mess up would actually be the correct or the best decision-making process. So when we fly through the clouds, we have to use our instruments. If we use our gut instinct, our body is so dysregulated and disoriented that we could think that the horizon is up or down. We could think that we're sideways when we're not. It's extremely confusing sometimes when our body is not grounded. And I mean that literally and figuratively. We have to be so in touch with us to really understand what our gut is telling us. So I trust when my gut is activated that there's something going on and I check that with other systems. I am not someone who uses data to make decisions, but again, I use that in my process of understanding, especially big decisions, how those are made. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, the third question. You've mentioned being a runner. 
what is your background as a runner? And this is from Alaska. I'm not sure if that's a name or the place, but that's from Alaska. Okay, so yes, I do identify myself as a runner. I actually started running in middle school and I was a bit of a sort of middle school phenom in a sense. I ran really fast before I hit puberty and I set some school records, which last time when I was there were still there. And I loved running. It was something that became a bit unhealthy for me when I was in high school and I was going through a lot of shit. I think I can say that on air, but I was just going through a lot. My parents were getting divorced and I lived away from home. So in a time when my world was a bit out of control, um, running became a real passion of mine. And when I went to college, I decided that it was not in my best interest to run competitively. And for many, many, many years, I ran and did not run competitively. There's a whole back question about myself and competition. It's rather complicated, actually. And I don't, I'm still sort of in trying to process whether or not it has to do with growing up with a mother that was a athlete and that focus on competition, not for me, but just as a lifestyle and just seeing the, the inner workings of that. I don't know why I have a complicated relationship with competition, but I do. And I chose not to be competitive as a runner for many years until I actually had kids and I really came to running and loved the community of running and started running more local events and got fast and just had a really fun time with that, just getting fast and fit and running. What I really love to do now with my running is to be fit enough to run in the mountains. <laughs> Regardless of competition or organized running, my husband and I share this love of just being out in the mountains and going on really long runs. So that is kind of what running is to me now. We have our older two kids are runners, identifying as runners right now too. So that has become fun. We do just little runs around and night runs and it's really fun. So that's my relationship with running. It is a big part of who I am, but not as a competitive runner for the most part. So that's that. The next question, what are you afraid of from Jenny Moore? I'm just going to answer this one with my most feared thing in the world is about my kids, that my kids would be hurt or that I would do something that would hurt them as a parent. As a parent, you make so many decisions for your children from naming them to where they're going to go to school, where you're going to live, the activities that they do. And um, man, you just hope that you do well. <laughs> That's kind of my deepest, corest fear is that something would happen to my kids. And I guess even worse than that is something that I had a part in. Just laying that out there. Next question's a little lighter. Are you a morning person or a night owl? And this is from Emerson Lee. This is a great question for me to answer because this is a working area for me. I've always been a morning person since I was a kid, waking up before dawn and going horseback riding and always loved being out in the early morning. However, when I was at architecture school, I learned about the night and I learned how productive the night could be. And now as a mom, I 
savor the night when everyone is asleep and I get to be creative and write and get work done. And now that we're in Switzerland and the time change is such that many of my collaborators are awake and actively working at night, I and continue to have a problem of both staying up late and waking up. And it has made me a nap person, which was not the question. So I won't get into that, but I do love naps. The next question, I think we're six now. Did motherhood change your approach to flying? And what about being a creative? So it's actually a two-part question. And yes, and yes, of course. First of all, I didn't actually start flying until I was already a mother of one. And yes, I think then becoming a mother of three, there's the logistic answer of, of course, it changed my availability, but it also changed my ability to concentrate. And it also changed the underlying feeling that I needed to come home. I needed to be there for pickup, which when you're doing something like flying and you could be grounded or you could have a change of plans is sort of an underlying stress. It has changed my approach to flying. And now that the kids are older and they have a lot of other activities, I have been flying less and less, which is hard to admit, but it is the fact. And it just is what it is. I know that flying will come back into my life when I'm a little bit more in control of my own time. But being a mother definitely changed what flying has meant to me, the literally flying in an airplane as the pilot. But actually the question was, did it change my approach to flying? So I think the question is trying to get at risk and Yes. I mean, I'm a very conservative pilot. I um, take all the safety measures and sometimes make decisions that others would think are more conservative than is necessary. But I would say that that continues to be a little bit of a push and pull for me as kind of what my risk tolerance is. I don't know if that would have changed, would be different if I wasn't a parent, but I kind of think it would. And as far as being a creative, okay, so this is kind of, this is kind of a totally different question. Motherhood did change my approach to being a creative because of the time that it takes to be a creative. I just don't have anymore. Well, I should say the time it takes to be the creative that I was and would be if I didn't have kids just simply isn't available to me. So my approach is much more about having the time that I have. I do what I can. And my production is a lot less than it would be if I had more time. I've also come to think of having children actually as the most quintessential, essential, and basic form of creativity. And once I've fully actually accepted that raising children is a creative measure, a creative move, it actually made me feel much more relaxed as a creative and just sort of content with the amazing opportunity to raise three people and expose them to the world. So yeah, that's my answer to that one. The last question, what is the difference between flying and flow the way you see it? And I don't actually know who this is from, so um, forgive me. Okay, so flow, let's just talk about the way I understand flow and the way I would use it. So this, the positive psychologist Mahali, let's see if I get his name right, Shikhsant Mahali and Jean Nakamuru describe flow as a feeling where under the right conditions, you become fully immersed in whatever you are doing. And there's absolutely an affinity between what we talk about in this podcast 
about flying and that sense of immersion, there is a relationship with flow. That sense of fluidity between your body and your mind where you're just completely immersed by and deeply focused on something to the point of distraction where time feels like it slows down and your senses are heightened. You are at one with the task at hand. And in a lot of the cases that we talk about or the ways in which we fly, that is absolutely necessary and often for safety reasons. As the action and the awareness sink, it's sort of this effortless momentum. And some people describe this as kind of being in the zone. So this is sort of what I would imagine the question is asking about the flow state and how is that, which is something that's really accessible to everybody. Anybody who is engaged in a physical activity or a creative pursuit or even a simple day-to-day task can get into the flow state. And I, and I love that. And I, I have been prioritizing on this podcast how to make flying metaphorically and literally, but especially metaphorically, something that's very accessible. And I think the flow state is perhaps the way that that can be done. Because I think the question, what is the difference between flying and flow? I think flying, however we're using that, does have an element of flow with it. I think every single person who flies knows that flow state and can identify it in an integral part of being able to successfully do whatever it is that you're trying to do that you're calling flying. So I think flow is part of flying, but I don't think that all flying is flow. (laughs) There's a lot of flying. And again, I'm using this in a broad term of flying. A lot of flying is discipline, repetition, practice, showing up, learning, getting back up. None of that is particularly flow. So I think flow is embedded in flying, but flying is not embedded in flow. Okay, so that's the last of my questions. Thank you so much. I again want to emphasize that we are always taking questions for Ask Me Anything. You can either submit them to my email at hello at whenwomenfly.com. That's where we catch all questions or comments. And then we also have the new voice on air option through pod inbox slash whenwomenfly.com. So there's a link in the show notes. Please, please, please let me know what's on your mind. Let me know what's working. Let me know what you want to hear more of. And thanks so much. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, and why it is important. If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it, send it to a friend, and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Also, I know you have heard this before, but leaving a five-star review on Apple or now Spotify is a huge boost for us. It increases our distribution and moves us up on the list. Did you know that recently the When Women Fly podcast was in the top 50 of Switzerland podcasts? That's actually not saying a whole lot because podcasting hasn't really blossomed yet here in Switzerland. But the When Women Fly podcast community is strong. Our listener numbers are rising. And the most important thing to me is it continues to have impact on you. 
So subscribe to the When Women Fly podcast each week. Don't miss a beat. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.